Well, good morning again. Thanks for the, the birthday love. I don't know if that's ever happened in here before. Thanks. Um, it's been a good Christmas week for uh, us. A little hectic, as always, with the kiddos. Hopefully it's been good for you guys, too. Last week, we took a little break for e- Christmas week from Easter, um, and we kind of took a break from Exodus and focused on Jesus, right, and, and Luke 2. This week, we're going to jump back into Exodus. We're going to finish out chapter 12. And and two weeks ago, we talked about um, the Passover. And we really broke down the Passover. And we talked about substitutionary atonement, which is a fancy theological term I didn't even mention two weeks ago. But it's the idea that Jesus takes our place. And and, uh, the cross is is showing that Jesus atones for our sins um, by his person and by his death and resurrection. This week, we're going to finish out chapter 12. We're going to continue to focus on salvation, but we're going to look at it from a different lens than maybe what you're thinking this morning. This morning, we're not going to talk just how we are saved by grace through faith, but why? What's the purpose? What's the point of our salvation? This morning, I hope that we relearn some things about what our salvation is for. So I read an article this week um, in The Guardian about a young woman. Her name is Kia Abdullah. She is a writer for The Guardian. She's a woman who is uh, Bengalese, uh, Bengalese by birth and ethnicity. But her family uh, migrated to London. And growing up in London was, was uh, interesting, to say the least, uh, to be uh, from... Um, a different country from Bengali, right? And uh, she said that a lot of her classmates that were also Bengalese uh, tried as much as possible to assimilate to the culture around them. And, and one of the biggest ways they did this was by not speaking their native tongue. They learned English. And Abdullah said that she never understood that because she took pride in the language of her people. But she said that as she was writing, as she grew older, she slowly started to lose her language, right? She was still living in London. She was not around other Bengali people often. She started to lose that language. And she got to a point after her dad died that the only person that she talked to in her native tongue anymore was her mom. And that was fine because, you know, the more she lost her language, she could still talk to her mom in in, in gestures, right? And she said that she would use loner words sometimes, which is like, she would speak in Bengalese, and then when she forgot the word, she would supplement an English word, and her mom would mostly get it. And so, you know, she, uh, she was starting to lose her language, but it was fine. Uh, this, she said this quote that I think is fascinating. She said, language is a crafty thing. If you fail to hold it firm, it easily slips your grip. She said in 2020, though, when she could only talk to her mom on the phone, and she didn't have the ability to do hand gestures and things like that, and and her mom wasn't technologically savvy enough to be on a video call, their conversations were almost completely stilted. They couldn't talk about anything. So she uh, started talking to her mom less over the months, and her mom finally confessed to her sister that she felt lonely and isolated. And that made her feel very sad. So this is what she did. She went on a journey to try to relearn her language, her Bengalese language. And the specific dialect that they speak, uh, there's no app, there's no tutor online that would actually teach it. So she was like trying to figure out, how do I relearn this language when I can't find anyone to teach me? 
She found one news channel on YouTube that spoke her uh, native dialect of Bengalese. And so she started um, listening to it all day, every day. And the language started coming back to her, right? Um, she started relearning it slowly but surely. Um, her conversations with her mom got uh, fuller and more rich. They were able to talk about more things. Um, and, and it's funny, when as she started to engage with her mom again on this level... She remembered things about her mom. She remembered her quick wit. She remembered many things about um, her humor, her personality that all came back to her. Uh, In her words, she says, like a lens finding clarity, it brought new shapes into focus. My mom's sharp intellect, her withering wit, her occasional bouts of melancholy. It was like she was relearning who her mom was by being able to engage with her again on an equal playing field. There's a reason that the Israelites celebrated Passover every year. They did it to celebrate what God did for them and rescuing them from Egypt. It, it, it was their most important story. It was the Jesus story of the Old Testament. It was their story of redemption and rescue. But God instructed them to celebrate it every year as a tool to instruct and teach them. To help them relearn who they were and who God was It wasn't just celebrating. It wasn't just remembering. It was instructive. Think about the young sons and daughters of those families who celebrated Passover every year, but never really understood what was happening until that one year that it clicked, right? Like a light goes off for them. They understood the gravity of what had taken place those years before, those centuries before. And they learned their heritage. And then every year after that, they relearned it, right? This applies to us as well, I think. Many of you have been Christians for a long time. Many of you have grown up in the church. Many of you um, know the shame of not having a dramatic enough conversion story in youth group, right? Because uh, you've always been a Christian. Many of you don't remember a time you weren't a Christian. And this is beautiful, right? This This is why we believe in the covenant family. Like we want our children to be that way. But it can be dangerous. Because it means that we can let things slip. Right? As in her words, she said, it's a crafty thing. If you fail to hold it firm, it easily slips your grip. Here's what's dangerous about it. We can let culture, even Christian culture, begin to influence us rather than letting the Bible influence us. If we don't hold these things firm of our salvation, of Scripture, they can begin to slip from us. So I think it's necessary for us to relearn the language of God's people often so that we don't let that happen. So that our relationship with God continues to be deep and robust and full, just like Abdullah and her mom's relationship that they relearned. And our language is a language of salvation, right? That is the language of God's people. The story of Exodus is about salvation, God saving a people who couldn't save themselves. It's the story of God's people is always about salvation, even ours. But I think we need to relearn what the purpose of our salvation is. Why are we saved? What's the reason? Is it just a ticket out of hell? Is it uh, to be a social justice warrior? Is it to separate us from the world? What's the point? And that's what I want us to relearn this morning. And I do worry about us. I worry that we think about salvation in individual terms only. 
If we're bent any way in our tradition, and we're going to talk about this more later, it's about me and God, what he's done for me, what he's gotten me out of. Here's my personal testimony. And none of that is wrong, right? But our salvation is not just about us or me. It has a purpose. The end of our salvation or the purpose of it is not ourselves. It's not just to get us out of hell. It's for the sake of the world. God didn't just rescue Israel out of Egypt. He didn't just bring them into the promised land. He set them apart. He blessed them so that they could be a blessing to the world. And we're going to dive into that deep this morning. So this morning we're going to relearn the purpose of our salvation. We're going to see it in three ways. First, Christ saved us from sin. Second, he saved us for the sake of the world. And third, he saved us to community. So from sin, for the sake of the world, to community. All right. Passover. We talked about it some. We read about it this morning. There was another part of Passover that they were instructed to keep. And it was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Verse 17, which we didn't read, but it's in your bulletin, says this. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. From this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statue forever. So God tells them, you have to observe this day for generations one thing that we, uh, as a forgetful people, will do is we'll let things slip out of our grasp if we don't keep relearning or re-participating in things. So he gives us things, rituals, liturgy, communion, things like that to help us recenter and re-instruct ourselves on God's will and his way and his kingdom. Verse 18 goes on. In the first month from the 14th day, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. So these are very strong and specific words, right? They're instructed to eat bread without leaven for a week. And he's so serious about it that if it's even found in their house, during that week, they were to be cut off. In five verses, he tells them four times to not eat anything with yeast in it, and twice that they'd be cut out if they did. So why? What's the deal with yeast? Why is it bad? What's going on here? Well, the most literal understanding of it is it to remind them the haste that they needed when they left Egypt, which we read, we'll read in 33. The Egyptians were so ready for them to go that the people just took their dough starters without the leaven in it yet, and they just went away with it, and it never had a chance to rise, and the bread was, came out unleavened. But there's a deeper meaning than just that. It's not explicitly stated in this chapter, but there was an understanding in Hebrew culture that leaven or yeast symbolized sin and the corrupting power of sin. And unleavened bread then, without yeast in it, symbolized holiness. So unleavened bread could never touch yeast or it would rise. The yeast would um, touch the bread and it would spread throughout all of it, causing it to rise. Even to this day, devout Jewish families at Passovers will search their house for any side of leaven and ceremoniously sweep it out their door. Because yeast grows and spreads. It works itself all through the dough, right? It, it, it goes through everything it touches. This is like sin, right? We believe that sin is a parasite. Um, it grows and festers inside of us. It corrupts everything it touches. 
both in our hearts and in the world. And God wanted to save Israel from their slavery, but he also wanted to save them from their sin. He didn't want to just get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. He wasn't just saving them from something, but to something. A clean sweep, getting rid of every last bit of the sin that corrupts them. The yeast of Egypt, sin, depravity, idolatry. I think it's the first thing that we must relearn about the purpose of our salvation. It's from sin. And I know that this doesn't seem like anything we should relearn, right? We talk about this all the time. We're Presbyterians, right? We talk about sin. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. We're rebellious people who wouldn't choose God, but God chose us despite ourselves and our brokenness. And you know your sin, right? Many of you, you know you struggle sexually. You know you struggle with lying or greed or gossip or slander. And these are all sins, right? And our salvation is from them and wins us grace. We need to continue to talk about this stuff. But I think that we do two things wrong. We have too low of a view of our sin. And we have a too high a view of our sin. We have too low a view first. Any uh, level of sin is egregious because it corrupts everything. But here's why it's really wrong. Often when we think about sin, we, we start, uh, we're starting with the Bible in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve eat of the, the fruit. They get kicked out of the garden. And we often as evangelicals like to start there. We're sinners. We're depraved, right? But the Bible starts in Genesis 1. The Bible starts and we see God putting his stamp on the jewel of creation, humanity. He makes us in his image. He makes us for eternity with him. When we start the Bible at Genesis 1, it puts sin in a new category for us. Because it shows us that us choosing sin was not choosing what we were created for. So yes, those things like lying, greed, gossip, um, malpractice in uh, the, the sexual realm or in the substance realm. Yes, those things are bad and they're sinful, but they're When we look at them as just individual things like that, it's too low of a view. When we partake in sin, we are partaking in things that are counter to how we were created. Against the fundamental way that God created us. So when we sin even slightly or make dalliances with it, we're going against who God made us to be. It's easy for us to have a low view of sin when we start in Genesis 3. But if you start in Genesis 1, you realize, wow, we have invited something to corrupt who God fundamentally made us to be. And what does salvation do? Why is salvation so good? What's its purpose? Well, it returns us back to who we were meant to be before sin entered the picture. Now, not fully, right? But the purpose of our salvation is to see our sin, reject it, and walk in line with Christ as the Holy Spirit renews us to do that in his image. But we also have too high an estimation of sin. And I believe that. I think we still do. We are sinful at the core because of what happened in Genesis 3. And our sin does have power over us. Yes. It causes us to harm us. Yes. It hurts others. Yes. And we see the fallenness of the world all the time. We see it in ourselves. We see it in one another. 
But his power is nothing compared to the cross. There's no sin too grave or too big that the power of Jesus Christ through God the Father cannot overcome. And if he can overcome it, and if he did overcome it, then he can forgive you. And he can forgive me. And he does. This is what grace is. It's unmerited favor to us who chose to rebel against God. Image bearers who choose to go fundamentally against how we were created. Grace says, no, I see that you did that and I will still love you anyway. I'll still die for you anyway. And many of you are here this morning and you struggle with doubt and self-hatred and anxiety and shame. And you think you're not good enough for anyone, much less God. You know your heart. You know your dark thoughts and deeds. You know the things you do or think. You don't tell anyone else. And many of us are here this morning. It feels like it disqualifies us from the love of God. But it doesn't. And when we believe that truth, we believe uh, we have a too high in estimation of our sin. Jesus Christ came and died so that we can be free. Your shame, your sin, your guilt is not the end of your story. Because Christ saved you. The purpose of one of the purposes of your salvation is to be free from shame. Have you ever thought about that? That is a purpose of it. To be free from that. From the guilt and shame that comes from our own willful rebellion. So this morning, let's remember, the purpose of our salvation is not to have too high or too low a view of sin, but to put it in its proper place. That it fundamentally goes against how we were created, and yet the, uh, the salvation and grace of Jesus Christ is more than it could ever do. Freedom from the binds of sin. And that brings us to our second point. So we relearn the purpose of our salvation. We must relearn the salvation that we have from sin. And now we're going to relearn how Christ saves us for the sake of the world. So there's this 20-verse chunk in 21 through 42 that shows us some things that we've already seen before. We see Moses relay God's instructions to the elders of Israel, how to prepare the Passover feast, to put the blood on the door. And we see God strike down all the firstborn in Egypt. And and we see Pharaoh cry out, bring Moses and Aaron to him. and, And he finally softens and tells them to leave. The Israelites get their things. They pack up. Like I said, they grab their bread. Um, they ask the Egyptians for jewels and goods, and they give it to them, and they leave. And there's three little snapshots that I want us to, to view um, as we go through this point of relearning um, that our salvation is for the sake of the world. The first is this. Um, verse, let's see, 24 says this. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel and Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. They bowed their head and worshipped. Funny enough, we're at at chapter 12. The last time we saw uh, Israel bow their head and worship was in chapter 5, when uh, God told Moses that he was going to save them, and, and Moses went and told them. So they haven't been doing a lot of worshiping up to this point. But the people of God are first and foremost characterized by our worship of God. And the same thing for the people of Israel. They were to be known as people who worship the one true God, right? And we're going to get, that's really important for us as a framework to start the rest of this conversation for the sake of the world. So just hold on to that for a sec. Then we see this very interesting and ironic thing happen in verse 31. It says this, 
Pharaoh is talking to Moses and he says, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord. As you've said, take your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone. And then he says this, bless me also. Pharaoh, whose heart had been hardened, right? Who had done great evil, had uh, been abusive and and, and slaving to God's people, who had defied God and in doing so brought all the plagues down upon his people, made them suffer for it. He finally softens. He lets them go. And then he says, bless me. He wants the blessing of God from God's own agent, from God's own mouthpiece before he leaves. The irony of ironies. But I actually think it makes sense, right? When the world finally softens to the work of God and his people, they want what God offers. When they finally realize what they can have in Christ, the world wants it. And they say, bless me. I think we forget that sometimes. We're going to get into that more later. Verses 35 through 36 show us that the people of Egypt, they also follow Pharaoh's lead, right? They were so ready for the Israelites to get out of there. They kick them out in the middle of the night. And the people are like, can I have some jewels and clothes and goods? And they're like, yes, whatever you need. Just go. Take this stuff. And they plundered them. Commentators are split as to why this happened or what the purpose of it was. But here's what we do know. Israel left Egypt in a position of strength. They left their slavery in a better spot, maybe, than they had 400 years before when they went to slavery. They left in a position of strength with clothing, jewelry, and into the promised land. So why did God rescue Israel? What was the point? Was it just to show that he could do it? That he was powerful and mighty and worthy of praise? Sure. Definitely, in part. Is it because Israel was his chosen people, his firstborn son, and he was reclaiming them in his, as his own? Sure. In part, yes. We've talked about that a lot. But here's the crux of what I want us to think about today. I think he saved Israel because Israel was his agent in the world to bring blessing. He saved Israel because Israel is his vehicle in the world to bring light to darkness. He, he blessed Israel so that they could be a blessing. They couldn't be those things when they were enslaved. So God reclaimed his people so that he could resend them out into the world. And here's what's fascinating. God's people follow his will and way for salvation, right? We see them do it. They kill the lamb. They put the blood on the door. And their first response after he passed over them, what was it? It was to worship. Response to submission to God And God's provision was worship. And what happens immediately after that? Two things. Pharaoh asked for blessing. And the Egyptians gave them jewels and goods. Fascinating. They were drawn to Israel. They were willing to give them things. They wanted to even maybe be like them in the end. Their salvation, the salvation of Israel was the biggest sign that their God was alive and at work. And that can be true of us too. I think we often think that our salvation is for ourselves. And it is. And every single one of those Israelites was beyond grateful for their rescue from Egypt. I promise you. But they knew. They knew it all the way back to Genesis 12. They knew that their salvation had a purpose. Their identity in Christ was for something. It wasn't just for them. 
It was for God's glory and God's power, but so that his purposes could be achieved in the world. That when the people of the world saw Israel, they saw God. You, church, are God's agents of blessing and redemption in the world. The church is God's agent of blessing and redemption in the world. So our salvation and entrance into the people and kingdom of God is not the point. If we stop there, if we stop at just being saved, we are incomplete. Because our salvation is not just for ourselves, it's for the sake of the world. It's for one another. We are set apart to bring about his kingdom, his flourishing, and his purposes to a world that are desperately in need. I was, um, I'll never forget, I was talking to a Methodist pastor one time. And we were talking about the differences between our denominations and our traditions. And Methodists, um, for the most part, are mainline tradition. And we are concerned, considered an evangelical tradition, right? And the biggest way he described those differences is we were kind of going back and forth a little bit. You know, a little friendly pastor banter. Y'all would have hated it probably. Um, I mean that like it was really nerdy. Um, he said the evangelical tradition typically focuses on how to get in the door is what he said. And he said the mainline tradition, his tradition, focuses on what to do once you're in the door. And I found that that was fascinating. He said, evangelicals try to find about, uh, talk about the path to salvation through Christ alone, through grace, through faith. But the Methodist tradition focuses on once you're a part of God's people, how do you move into the world? And this is why I, I think if you notice, Methodists are socially active. They focus on the work of God's people in his kingdom. So who's correct? Both, right? God's people are not just the focus. We should not just focus on the means of salvation only, but also the work of salvation, right? And those two things aren't against one another. I think that we often think that, oh, if you don't think about Christ and his atoning work all the time and only that, you're, you're sub-Christian. That's not true. We are the hands and feet of God's people on this earth, and this flows out of this. It's both. It's how to get in the door and what we do when we're in. Or, I think a better way to frame it is, is that it's all of it, right? You can't take one or the other. This is what we must relearn. We must talk about the cross and Christ crucified, but we also have to talk about creating flourishing. This is why throughout history, you, you go back and look through history. The church has been a place where people have started hospitals, schools, adoption agencies, refugee agencies, homeless shelters, meal kitchens. Why do you think so many universities were started as Christian universities? Why do you think so many hospitals were started as Christian hospitals with Christian names? It's because throughout history... Christians have understood that moving into the world, creating flourishing for those who need it is so important. Whether it's an education for the homeless, for the needy, for the sick. This is our calling into the world. So when people start nonprofits or organizations to help a world in need as a body, we should celebrate that. We should come alongside that. We should prop them up. Because that is what the church is called to do is to bring God's kingdom, a kingdom of 
Grace, mercy, truth, love in every sphere, in the arts, in education, in our homes, in our jobs, in the business section, and even in politics, all of it, Christ claims as his own. And we must go out as God's agents, his image bearers, and bring about his kingdom in those places. It's not um, just a calling. It's who we are. It's who we are as God's people. Israel understood that. And I hope that we relearn that part of our calling. And it brings me to my final point. So relearning the purpose of our salvation, it's from sin for the sake of the world and it results in community. So um, in verse 43, God tells Moses this really interesting thing as he institutes the Passover. He says that no foreigner and no sojourner can take a part. He said the Passover meal is exclusive. There's a exclusivity to God's people. I know that's kind of hard to hear, but it's true. But that exclusivity is not for exclusivity's sake. Because verse 48 and 49 say, um, the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. For he shall be as native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. He said the Passover is for God's people only. It's exclusive. But if you want to become part of God's people, get the sign of the covenant. Come in and be part of our family. The Passover was a family meal reserved for God's family. One thing that I love about hope is that um, we used to, at least, eat together a lot. Nothing quite creates space for connection and community like breaking bread together, right? Um, I love that our community groups all eat together. We do big groups. It's probably like the most old school thing we do. We do potlucks, right? People bring food. We used to, pre-COVID. I think it's purposeful um, that God's people are often shown in the Bible to be eating together. Because it shows the communal nature of God's people. We, our salvation purchased us a new identity. And that identity isn't individual, it's corporate. God created a family through Christ. What Christ did when he came, died, and rose again, and his righteousness covers us, binds us together into a new family. And this is exclusive, right? Because it, it is just for us as God's people But it's not exclusive for exclusivity's sake. We're actually supposed to invite people into this family. We're supposed to be winsome because we want people to come into this family. We want to open our doors to people and bring them into this family. But to partake of our meal with us, you got to profess faith in Christ. You got to become part of the family. Community for us has looked a lot different this year. It's probably our greatest strength as a church. And it's been greatly inhibited. And that's been really, really tough. And I think we can lament that as a community. I miss spending time with you guys corporately. I miss spending time with you guys normally in community group where we get in a house and we, it's all chaos and we're cooking food and it's wild. I mean, it's been tough this year. We were built for community. But here is my encouragement for you. 
even if we can't get together like normal, even if it feels a little off, we're still a community. We're still a family of God. We are still one. God has purchased us, this community of people, together to grow together, to fight with one another, to enter into conflict with one another, to have grace with one another, to love one another well. That's part of the purpose of our salvation is to grow in community. So if you are feeling weary and lonely and isolated and missing how things used to be, I see you. I'm there. I hear you. But God's family is still here. God's community is not going anywhere. And whether it's in 2021 or 2022 or 2025, when things get back to normal, my hope is that we grow together. We continue to press into that community that God's given us, that family. And what I love so much about Hope Chapel is that every week, and what was so hard during that first like six to eight weeks of uh, shelter in place when we were streaming only, that we weren't able to take this meal together. But the reason why we didn't is because we believe that to take this meal, we have to be together. You can't take God's covenant meal if we are not God's covenant family together. And so what a gift it is that we get to, as a community, purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, come together and we get to feast on his body and his blood as we remember what he's done for us. And this is the um, fulfillment of the Passover. The blood of Christ covers us. His body was broken for us so that we can be saved. And so that we can have this new identity together. So that we can go on mission for the sake of the world. So that we can have freedom from sin.